0: Hello and welcome to the Drum History Podcast. I'm your host Bart Vanderzee, and today I'm joined by Mr. Lewis Bernstein, who has a uh, has had quite the collection of drums throughout his his lifetime. Lewis, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Bart. Great to be here. Yeah, so this is an interesting one um, that that I'll say right off the bat. um, Our mutual friend Richard Hirsch uh, suggested and really stuck on me uh, because sometimes I get a suggestion and then I go, "That's a great idea," and then I. I move on to something else and I forget. And then I come back and and he said, no, 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 you got to talk to Lewis about downsizing a drum collection, which is, like I said, a very unique topic. But I think a lot of guys and girls will uh, who are amassing collections over their lives will hit a point where, oh, boy, I got a lot of stuff. What do I do with it now? (laughs) True. true. I want to learn more about you as a player and a collector and all this stuff, but just to kind of get it going Why don't we start with um, maybe tell us about what your collection was um, at its its highest point.
1: Great. So going back to Richard Hirsch, I met Richard three months after I sold all my collection. And that was a horrible feeling for Richard because he was really starting to collect at the time, a few years ago. And when we met, we discovered we were drummers. We discovered we liked vintage drums. I said, I had this great collection. He said, oh, I'd love to see it. I said, it's <laughs> down to nothing. There's three little drums left.
2: Oh, boy. Uh,
1: so that's how we became good friends. And so as a, as a kid growing up in Philly, I had an older brother. have an older brother. He's four years older. He was a guitar player. And uh, I always wanted to play drums. My dad was a jazz musician. That's what he did for a living. He taught piano, and he played in jazz bands and jazz clubs, and then eventually to the wedding bands and things. So I got a cheap little drum set, and I was hooked. I love drums. So I began collecting. At the end of my collection, which really was about 2013 to 14, I had... In my drum room, in my basement, on display, 120 snare drums and four drum sets. Over the years, because I bought and traded and sold, I had about 230, 240 snare drums that passed through me. Wow, yeah. And maybe 30 drum sets. My collection really was based upon the late 1920s to the late 1960s. Hmm. I had some things in between, you know, know, in the 70s and 80s and some in the teens. But really, that's where my collection was. So at the height, you know, I was really sitting on some really great pieces. And I started in the 70s when there weren't really value to a lot of old drums, that you could get things. Extremely reasonable. In fact, up until, I guess, the mid-90s, early mid-90s, prices were really good if you didn't buy from certain collectors. So that's how, you know, and most of my collection was really White Marine Pearl.
2: Hmm.
1: That's what I was fixated on, fixated on Buddy Rich, Gene Krupa. They played White Marine Pearl. That was really the drums of choice back in the day when I really liked the music from then. So that's basically how my collection evolved.
0: Yeah, which um, I'll add some photos. If you're listening to this on a podcast, um, and I kind of want to say this in general, typically um, on the more recent episodes for people who like the podcast, there's typically a video interview, which will be on YouTube, um, usually the same day that the main show is released. And there. When applicable, I can add photos um, of Lewis, like like for now of Lewis's collection um, or really anything like that, that that like there's a Beatles one with Gary Astridge where we had, you know, pictures of Ringo's kit and it really helps. So we'll be doing that where I'll, I'll show pictures of uh, Lewis's collection. But, yeah, I noticed it's a lot of white marine pearls. So that's a that's an, an interesting thing that I really like about collectors and collecting is, um, you know, you find your thing, you like it. You collect it and um which maybe is is, you know, not to jump ahead too much to the selling of the collection. But um, I wonder if it's if it's harder or easier to sell when you have, let's say, a hundred white marine pearl snares as opposed to a wide variety of snares, because that's a very desirable finish. I think that is one right. of the most desirable as opposed to, you know, like a tangerine sparkle or something or a. Pink sparkle. It's like everyone kinda wants a white marine pearl. So so you really did pick a um a timeless thing to collect, which I guess helps with the the, the resale. Uh we'll, well tell us first off, when did it happen? When did you you said fourteen, thirteen, fourteen, fifteen?
1: Yeah, yeah so so uh it happened at my daughter's wedding. Believe it or not. So two thousand thirteen, July, my daughter gets married, and my new son in law's cousin, comes up to us and says, hey, I heard you're thinking of moving. We want a house. We heard you have a nice house. We're looking in that neighborhood. Would you let us see your house? Sure. You know, we were thinking of moving, but not for a few years, maybe three, four years, moving out of the house, four bedrooms, four baths, full basement. You know, that was my drum room, garage workshop, to an apartment, to a condo, two bedroom, two baths, no room for drums. And so we had a lot of time to think about it. And I had time to think about it. Never heard from them. About September, I get a phone call on a Sunday. Hey, uh, we're Scott's cousin. We're in the neighborhood. Can we come by and see your house? No, I said, sure, come by, you know. So they came in September, looked at the house, called me that night, made me an offer, said I'd like to move in April 1st. That's when the panic began. <laughs> because
2: wow! Because now,
1: yeah. you know, I had to come through it first emotionally more than anything. Yeah. Because I'd been doing a little selling. I had maybe 150, 160 snare drums, and I had sold the ones that really didn't mean much to me. Yeah. But but they really when when you when you're hunting and you find things and it takes sometimes years you have an emotional attachment. So yeah. that was all of a sudden panic struck in. And that's when I had to decide I needed to do it by April to get rid of everything, but a few drums and drum sets and accessories and parts and magazines and articles. And yeah, so it, was, uh, it, it was a tough
0: time. And pack your house up to move like your normal right your right. furniture and your plates and stuff. I mean, You know, all joking aside, it really is a psychological like we are so connected to our stuff of like, um, you know, well, I've had that symbol for, you know, 30 years or something. I don't want to get rid of that. But then you're like whenever I like clean stuff out, even like a shed or something, there's like stages of like, well, I'm going to want that bag of sand later on <laughs> <laughs> it's like, like, for something, for something. I, but then the next phase is, well, all right, I'll get rid of that now. And then it's like, well, now I can get rid of this. I mean, but you had to like, you had to do it fast. Yeah. Um, yeah. Geez. All right. So, so let's just jump in then. Like, how did that so obviously you're you're not happy, but you got to do it. I mean, there's- I have
1: to do it, right? And you know, it, it's there's several ways to do it. I have been involved in vintage drums and know tremendous people, great people over the years. I was at the, I think, the very first vintage drum show in the early '90s. Mike Cairo had in Bethesda, Maryland, and then Jack Lawton, who's a very dear friend of mine, started the Pennsylvania Drum Show. And I've been to most of his over the years. And so I know so many people I used to communicate with people before internet and before email, we would talk on the phone or write letters and, you know, get pictures and have them develop the send of things. So I knew a lot of people, I mean certain people wanted certain parts of my collection. So, you know, one of the things though is pricing, you know, Where do you, what do you tell a friend that, you know, you can get $5,000 for this drum or $2,000 and he only really wants to pay, you know, 300 or 500, but that's another difficult part because in this crazy drum market, you could get somebody in another country that will pay five times what somebody here would pay. Sure. Sure and that's where the auction sites like eBay and Reverb really have helped, you know, collectors both buying and selling. Yeah. So, I started to talk to some of my friends and some of the people that I knew were got out certain people were calling me and it got to where it was a little bit difficult to try to price. And yeah. I figured the only fair way to do it for me is to put it on an auction.
0: Like auction all of it, it in one
1: yeah, piece. I mean, right. So certain friends of mine I did get pieces for. You know, yeah, somebody sure. wanted, you know, a snare that I had, you can have it, you know, for this much and that much. And I was looking at where the prices seem to have been. Yeah. But the other key is I didn't do a lot of selling. So I didn't have a reputation. And that's key on something like this, because if you're a seller and you have a a really great stellar reputation, you're going to get more money than somebody else that doesn't because of the trust factor. Sure. Plus, people look at your site all the time. You're their favorite. I'm I'm not a favorite for buyers because I'm not really a seller. Sure. So one of my good friends for many, many years is a fellow named Rich King. And King's Music, he's out of Annapolis, Maryland. We go back many years ago to when he was a dealer, and he's become the go-to person for so many people. Charlie Watts, and he were very close friends. He did mm-hmm. a lot of work for Charlie. Charlie trusted him. In fact, just a little segue, he invited me to meet Charlie in 1994 at a Stones concert. Wow. And Philly got me backstage. We just hung out. So, Rich has got this tremendous reputation, unblemished in any way, the most honest. So, I called him up. I said, Rich, I have all these snare drums. You know about a lot of what I have. How about helping me sell them? Three hours later, he was in his car, drove up with his SUV, and we started putting everything into his car. And over the next several months, he was posting them, putting the descriptions, the pictures, and he was getting tremendous results on this.
0: Wow! I mean, you're you're so right. That trust, which obviously, there's nothing saying that you're not trustworthy. You not you just hadn't done it. That's like where the guys like Steve Maxwell and people like that have built that reputation, right? To be a dealer, and also, like you said, if and and, and I'm sure. Just with being you know the transparency of it all obviously I would imagine that you said I'll give you a percentage or I will cut you in because that's a job is taking pictures packaging using the connections and like we were saying before you got to move out of your normal the rest of your house right. so that's a lot to and you have normal life going on so you sort of need someone's help and and, and I guess you could people out there can do it themselves but with a collection that size it that help, I'm sure, is just invaluable.
1: That's exactly right. You know, when you go to a house sale and somebody you know, sets up these house sales or antique sales, you know, they do it all at one time. So yeah. I had that feeling. And again, with Richard's reputation and his knowledge of every drum made, that really helped tremendously also because he knows flaws and he knows what is an OEM and yep. he could put that in the description and he he always did he was you know yeah. uh, totally transparent in what he would say about a drum and so yeah. that helped a lot
0: you know there's something about selling stuff uh where um i have found that like if my wife is trying to sell like you know just some house stuff like a table and i go did you put in the description That there's a big scratch on one of the legs from like where a dog scratched it or something. No, I didn't. I didn't say that. Uh, And then I have to kind of be like, "Well, they're going to find out. It's going to be awkward." So it's sort of one of those things where you need to say up front, "There's no hiding it." When someone, you know, that's how you keep your reputation. But like just putting all that information right up front, there is a blemish. It it does have, you know, a the lug was replaced on this one side or something like, <laughs> right. Why, why not say up upfront? Um, because that's how you get, I feel like those, those, the reputation is earned by every little, it's over years and years of, of, uh, of selling to people. So that you're, you're, you're paying him for that trust.
1: That's correct. And, and you know, it's, he also didn't put everything on auction because he knows what certain people are looking for that pay top dollar.
2: Yeah. And
1: he wanted to help them out as well. And I will tell you for what he charges, it was well worth it for me because he got much more money for pieces than I would have gotten because I didn't have the real collectors. I wouldn't have them coming to buy to my site. They might say, you know, Radio King 5x14 White Marine Pearl and pass me by. But him, they zero in on. So that really was a big help. And it was again over months and months, and yeah. you yeah. know a lot of questions, and he had to answer, but it worked out, and it was it was difficult. I have to tell you emotionally, like I said, because yeah. certain pieces really I went through a lot to get i uh, you know trading and offers and selling pieces to get others, and somebody said, "Well, if you find me this, you can have this drum, so I would go on the hunt looking for that so there was you know, a lot of work put into building the collection.
0: Yeah. We will get to describing a little bit more about what's in the all that and what was in the collection and all that stuff. But while you're there, because I was just thinking, like emotionally, this is tough. I mean, you've worked so hard on it. It was it is your hobby. It's it's a lot of our hobbies. I mean, um, it's it's something fun just to do. It's that hunt. It's it's so rewarding when you've been searching for it. And man, that's tough just to get rid of it. But what, do you, what was the alternative? Were you going to put it in a storage unit so, and then no one, right. you know, what, what do you do? So uh,
1: another friend of mine who was a collector, well, I was telling him what I was going to do. And I first said, maybe I'll just put it in storage. And he said, well, you may as well put cinder blocks in the storage bin. <laughs> because if you're not going to look at them and you're not going to play them, what are you storing them for? What, yeah. what, what does that do? You know, yeah. when I had them, they were on display in a room so I could see them and I could pull down a snare drum and play it along with my set and pick, take another one down another time. Yeah. But I, and it, it, that really made sense to me all of a sudden figure out a few that I'll keep and just start, you know, life over again as I did before being a drum collector. Yeah. And, and and it was, you know, some of the things that, I had some older friends that were really terrific, that were drummers and or collectors that would come over and help me. We would polish, we'd buff, we would, you know, take the rust off of certain uh, tension rods and things. Yeah. And I would hold that drum and I'd think of them say, wow, I remember Ed helped me with this or bill and, you know, Oh yeah. those were yeah. things that, you know, again, part of that whole emotion
0: yeah but it's it's this is like kind of a microcosm of just of life in general, I guess of like you acquire things you work really hard to get a new house and a bigger house, and then at a certain point then you want to get a smaller house um so what was you i mean I'm sure it was it was a mixed bag of emotions but when when your collection when when it was sold off um which how long did that take i mean that process of him so it started yeah. uh
1: in Late 2013, so say November, December, and by the summer of 2014, everything was done.
0: Wow, man. All right. So then what was you? You were probably busy also with moving and kind of work, you know, life happening. What were you feeling then? I mean, just so like, because the whole thing I keep thinking with all this is getting, you know, maybe someone will be at that stage in life soon or they will at some point. Kind of give them a little bit of a roadmap map of like, all right, this is the after. <laughs> this is so, the. So the grief. you know, it, it
2: depends
1: on what you have. I had some very premier drums, so the first couple of checks that I got from Rich were a very substantial amounts. Yeah, you know, a drum that normally you would maybe say or six seven hundred dollars, I'm getting a check for a thousand. Wow. Or. Fifteen hundred or eight hundred. A stand, uh, a, a, a Roger Swan leg swivematic cymbal stand,
2: two
1: hundred dollars, two fifty. It was like all of a sudden I'm getting several thousand dollars at a time wow. for for several pieces, and I never paid anywhere near any of that. I mean. I really yeah. was at the time when I was buying, you know, drums were hundred dollars, 150. Uh, I had a, a Ludwig and Ludwig streaked opal, five by 14, tube lug. It's on the cover of the guide to vintage drums. Fellow called me up. It was about 1990 said, I found this drum. Uh, I know you like old drums. If you want it, come see me. I went, he showed it to me. I paid him $100 for it. He said to me he bought it for 20 at a garage sale. <laughs> now, I sold that in the mid-90s because a collector had been after me, and I sold it for $3,500. Oh my God. So that was way back. It, if it was white marine pearl, I may not have sold it so fast, <laughs> but it was white marine pearl with the black, so it was streaked opal. but it was a ridiculous amount of money. Yeah, so I never paid that much for drums. So I was able to when I started getting checks, say, wow, this is crazy money,
0: crazy money. Yeah, I mean, but like you said, you didn't get into it for that reason of no, selling. Right. But but hey, that's that that the great answer of that kind of softens the blow a little bit. Well, it of like it, it does. I mean, you're you. You deserved it, though. You did the work. You put in the collecting time. You did the hunting. You learned a whole lot. I mean, you've got it's a passion that you've obviously we all share and that you you got to really like hold these drums and make friends doing it and have fun doing it. But uh, when it ends, I mean, yeah, of course, that's great. You, you, You took kind of a risk on some of them. I'm sure not every drum panned out to be you know, paid 100, got 3,500. I'm sure they weren't all no, no, right. windfall, um, you know, amounts of money. But, um, yeah, so uh, you, you must still, though, think about that collection and miss it, I'm sure, from time to time. Your drum room and all that stuff. That's has to be. That's that's beyond normal, you know.
1: Well, he, and, and, you know, some of the... I have a nephew who, uh, when he was 12, came over, got into drums... I started teaching him. By 14, he was teaching me. Oh, wow. He went on to play in college, went to Boyer College of Music, played in the Jazz Big Band, went to SUNY Purchase for his master's degree, played in New York for about eight years, recording, playing. He now is in a different business. But he would come over all the time, and we would play. We'd have a couple drum sets set up. And he loved Vintage Drums. His first set was a bread and butter lugged Rogers from the early mm. 60s that I got for him that he absolutely loved. Wow. So that part, those are the things that I miss. Friends coming over. Uh, I got very friendly. I was very fortunate to get very friendly with Mel May over the years. Mm. Cool. And Mel, tremendous guy, would spend the month of September, mid-September, mid-October in New York at Michael's Pub playing every fall until he got sick and passed. And the second year he was there learning about my collection, asked if I would give him a drum set to use for his drummer, Donny Osborne. Hmm. So I had a mid-60s Rogers White Marine Pearl Buddy Rich set. And every year I'd bring it up and Donny would use it for a month. Wow. And that's, you know, I can't get that back. That's something that, you know... was part of my collection and when Mel came to Philly to perform a few times with the Philly Pops he used my one of my Radio King snare drums and I have pictures of that you know him on stage with my drum so those are things that you know you just never never will get
2: back
0: yeah but I I, I mean it's so cool that it happened I keep I was just thinking like you know would you rather have loved and lost than not loved at all (laughs) <laughs> like some i mean you you did it you had the it, it's it's just the way of life i guess um so after you experienced this process of downsizing and and all this stuff uh and you've been through it for folks who might like i said have to go through it at some point is there anything you would have maybe done differently or that you learned from the process um or things like you, you said using kind of like rich using using a um a broker, I guess you could say, was seems like a, a big benefit to you, but is there anything you learned that you might have done a little differently?
1: Probably. Uh, one of the things I would have done is not have as many drums at one time. And that's really truthful, because yeah. it becomes a little bit too large to really wrap your arms around and really say, gosh, I have a really great collection. But too much, you know, I remember seeing the bumper sticker, the one who dies with the most toys wins, (laughs) you know, I I, I didn't want to have the most drums. And it became, you know, a little bit of an obsession because it's white marine pearl. But I already have that. Well, but here's another one. Why can't I have two white marine pearl Dynasonics or two Levy white marine pearl snare drums? Yeah. But I didn't have to. And that's one of the things that I definitely would do differently. I would not have as many drums in my collection. Maybe half would have been a perfect amount Mm. to have. And then also selling would have been a little easier. Uh, And and the other thing is, you know, I I would not have done it myself. As I said, for me, not having the seller's reputation, it was a, a tremendous boost for me to reap the most that I could out of my collection, having yep. somebody that has the reputation that Rich has.
0: Yeah. And I mean, God, the maybe a couple drums would be sort of fun to like box up and package and ship, but like logistically doing that for a hundred, fifty snares or whatever, I mean, that's a lot of work. That's it, a job. It is.
1: it is. And I've done it over the years. Of course I was always selling something here or there. You know, you buy a set, they get a drum. Yeah, I, I bought sets just to get a foot pedal.
2: Yeah,
1: you know, I didn't want the set; I wanted the foot pedal. Yeah, but it was there, and then yeah. I had to sell those off. But yeah, th- that's probably the only things you know that I would change a bit.
0: Yeah, yeah. All right. Well, no, that's that's a great point. So um, maybe now we could talk a little bit more about what was in the collection. Um, some like some maybe your favorite drums. Obviously, there's a ton there. We know they're pr- primarily white marine pearl, but maybe what are some of your Absolute favorite drums that you had, and some of the stories that go along with the uh, the process of collecting sure. them.
1: So the reason I began my collection, like I got into drums, I became a drummer. Uh, my father said, "Buddy Rich, that's the guy you got to watch." Yeah, and I remember when I was about eleven, maybe twelve years old, on public television. They showed a Harry James video and it was Buddy Rich on drums. I think it was recorded around 64, hmm. 1964, 1965. It's about 20 minutes on YouTube, but there was Buddy and he was playing White Marine Pearl Rogers.
2: Hmm.
1: And that's when I decided I want to start looking for Rogers drums and I wanted to start looking for White Marine Pearl. So I set out. And started looking, and that was when I was, you know, in in the seventies, nineteen seventies is when I really started to look for that. I knew what I wanted, I knew what I liked. But then doing more history on Buddy, seeing that he had Radio Kings and he had WFLs, and I thought, well, gee, maybe I can get the, one of the snare drums Buddy had, and started looking for the, you know, the three by thirteen bebop and the super Ludwig and all the different. Snare drums that Buddy had. Yeah. So that's how I started to collect them. Yeah. You know, the hardest one, I think, I had that I finally got was the White Marine Pearl Tricks on, which oh, yeah. he played under the label Vox for a very short time. There were some I never got. Uh, I never got the Slingerland with the TDR throw off. That was seventies. It really didn't mean an, uh, enough to me. Mm. And I never was able to get the super sensitive that he had when he was a, a teenager. It, yeah. You've seen it when he it's a five by 14 with the extenders. I, I never found that hmm. I looked forever, yeah. but I never found it.
0: I got to send you the episode or maybe you've heard it, but it was Tommy Peoric did the buddy. Yeah. Rich, the the, yeah, oh, yeah. 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 And, and that almost just had a, I mean, Tommy was great, but he, so he sold that collection as a whole, but, um, I just think there's something about the chase and the hunt and the build, and it's kind of like once you get to the point of okay, I think I have everything I need. Um, what do you do then? You know what right. I mean? I guess it's you've you've completed. It's all about the journey <laughs> to be. Well, kind of I, I was cliche. very
1: fortunate also that when Buddy passed, I was able to get one of his white marine pearl music stands. Oh wow! It said Slingerland. Wow. So I have that. That I never will get rid of. That's yeah. in my collection. Uh, it's flat, so it doesn't take up as much room. But some of my favorite snares, obviously, my Wood Dynasonic was one. Um, my five by fourteen Radio King was another. Yeah. Uh, I would say my two favorite favorites is one, and I've kept both of these. One is a late twenties five by fourteen Ludwig Black Beauty with a floral pattern sure. and in very, very good condition that I kept mm. and, a, a, about a 1964 Rogers power tone with the clock face from, uh, in white Marine Pearl. Those wow. are the two that I kept.
0: Yeah. You, so, that was going to be a, a question as you know, what makes it, what gets kept out of that? <laughs> so the but-
1: reason that one particularly got kept, I, I was, I'm in sales. And I used to travel. I don't travel much anymore. But I travel to four or five different states and drive around visiting customers. If I passed a pawn shop or I saw a music store, I pulled in. Yeah. So I found drums in places. I bought drums on airplanes, drums on trains. I had drums shipped. But I got to know people in different states. This one fella in New York had a pawn shop. And I saw this White Marine pearl, and this Powertone. And it wasn't for sale. Hmm. Took me three years. And I'll never forget on a Friday, I stopped in again. And he said to me, I'm going to sell you this drum. And that was one of the hardest drums I ever got. (laughs) And so that's why I kept it. And there was also a rumor that... Buddy like the power tone would drum better than the Dynasonic, so uh, that was another reason why i wanted that drum.
0: (laughs) oh that just like that makes you think too of things in life where like if you can't have it you want it more you know (laughs) there's absolutely for me that's true and i'm sure that's for all of us drummers it's like well i can't have it but i'm gonna check in now every every time i'm in town
1: well and you know i remember trying to make a deal with a fella And I was up to like five to one, five snare drums that were really good to trade them for one. And I was telling another collector friend of mine who said, stop, it's ridiculous. Just time. You have nothing but time. That drum you want will come along. One day it'll come along. Just don't do it. And I didn't do it. Mm. And about a year later, I did get the same drum without selling or trading five or six drums plus cash. You know, wow.
0: like- what drum was it? I mean, that is, so a- it was,
1: it was an early radio King.
0: Hmm. It was
1: a, a, a 1936, 1937 with the bridges. And it was mint. And I wow. found one just like it, but it was around nineteen ninety four ninety three, And they were already popular for collectors. So it was very hmm. hard to get. You know, I probably saw a dozen of them in the eighties and passed on them. Yeah. You know, and, sure. and that's, that's the thing. I, I walked into a pawn shop. I remember it was 1980 and there was a bread and butter Rogers, twenty twelve fourteen 14 matching snare in Mardi Gras. Oh my God. And I said, you know, it, it doesn't do anything for me. And three years later, I went back. It was there. I said, I have got to get this. This is Mardi Gras. (laughs) Nobody has Mardi Gras. (laughs) And I I bought that set. Wow. I was still there. I was lucky.
0: You don't see that finish. uh, I mean, nowadays, you never see that sitting around at a pawn shop. I mean, what did you think were the big changes? I mean, did it become less fun when everyone had access to the same information in pawn shops where... They can read about how much it's worth and they're an expert too now because they can Google it. Well, you know,
1: uh, way back before, that was not so modern drummer, John Aldrich. Sure. And on the back of every issue, there'd be items for sale by different people. And, you know, I would buy and, and sell, but I remember there were times when I would get my copy and I would pick up the phone right away and call someone they say, oh, that was so when? Uh two weeks ago. Well, my Mm -hmm. newsletter got held up. (laughs) Theirs didn't. And that's what you would rely on, you know, to get drums to buy. You would call friends. You would look around. But when things like eBay came, and, and that's still to me the biggest one, there was so much availability that it was a good thing to find pieces it was yeah. a very good thing you know i would yeah as soon as i would turn on my computer i would hit ebay and finished percussion would come up that's right right away yeah so i'd sit there all night you know looking at things uh what it did on the negative side was embellish the pricing you know it would make something that was worth 50 dollars now 250 yeah. or 350 so it, it drums became more expensive sure. than you know prior to something like that. Yeah. But you could find it. You could buy it.
0: Yeah. Okay. So you said uh, also you you are primarily a snare drum collector. You had drum sets, obviously four or five you said. What were some of those drum sets that you had? And I know obviously as a Buddy Rich fan, were they primarily Buddy replica kind of kits or It
1: was funny. It, most of them were. So I had uh I always had my Rogers, the two 16 by 16s, a 22, 13, and matching snare. I had two Radio King sets, one with beaver tail, one with the Streamline. They were one was a 26, 13, two 16s, and one was a 24, 13, one with a matching. Hmm. Of course, I had a
2: 22,
1: 13, 16 Ludwig Black Oyster Pearl Ringo set.
0: Nice, yep.
1: Because you know. Ringo, I have to give him credit for what he did oh, yeah. for drums and drummers. Uh that was one of my other really favorites. I had a couple really great Gretsch kits. I'm a huge Max Roach fan. So I love Gretsch and sure. I used to, you know, collect the, the pictures of all the, the, the Gretsch drummers, the Rogers drummers, the Slingerland drummers. So I had a couple really good Gretsch kits. I had two nice lady kits, uh which were just spectacular one in white Marine Pearl and uh, another one in blue sparkle. And I would have over the years, Rogers in different configurations. Uh, I had one of the the ear with the double mounted Tom, Tom. I had a Gretsch double mounted Tom, Tom. I never played double mounted, but you know, I had them. Sure. Uh, I had one Slingerland 80 n mid set uh, early seventies. Buddy Rich set, 24, 13, 216s I've had five or six White Marine Pearl Canister Thrones.
0: Nice, yeah. I have
1: one right behind me that was owned by Buddy.
0: Wow.
2: That
1: Buddy's son-in-law uh, gave me years ago. He worked at Manny's Music and I gave them video tapes for a couple of the Buddy Rich uh, scholarship videos and he had this throne that was there and gave it to me in white marine pearl slinger limb wow so that's that's, that's that never will get
0: sold yeah that's not getting sold i can't uh, believe he gave it to you instead of yeah. just like i'll give you a good deal i mean wow
1: well you know i, I did give them a lot of tapes and sure. for the jazz legend uh, hudson music i'm gave a lot of the the tapes the videos Course, i had a really? big collection of buddy rich videos i would trade with people all over the world and i would Man. I would pay a lot of money, get them in PAL and have to transfer them to NTSC. And there was yeah. a guy in Naperville, Illinois, that did it. And I didn't even know what I was getting half the time. But I, I'm i on the credits for a lot of the videos. Burning for Buddy. Wow. Giving those. So, you know, it helped me get to know a lot of people.
0: You know, those, uh, it's just an interesting side note, those... um the videos that you're talking about, the legendary drummers or whatever it was called, where it's it's like Hudson. Jazz you know, legends, right. Yeah, yeah. Would that be the one where it had like kind of the lower thirds of it would be like the blue like bar and it would come up with the, the title of the drum? I've posted. That's exactly right. Okay, because I have posted on social media a fair amount because that's kind of, you know, I'll do the episodes and then I'll do social media videos a lot uh, of these great drummers. When I first started doing that and building a following with just drum videos, I would just go to that particular video on YouTube and kind of pull them off and put it on Instagram or whatever. And it's unbelievable to be talking to the person who acquired those original tapes. I mean, I've I've never even really thought about talking to the guy who found those. What was that like, hunting those tapes down?
1: So it's very interesting. There there was a, a fellow that used to, uh, Michael Chertok and David Chertok, they showed films at the... Jazz record collectors. There would be a record show, IAJR's International Jazz Record Collectors. And they would show film footage of maybe Buddy with Tommy Dorsey, you know, doing Hawaiian word chant, or yeah. with Artie Shaw and movie How's About It. And I made some deals with him to buy some of his footage on VHS. Hmm. And then I found out that a lot of the jazz festivals in Europe. They show on European TV. So I knew people in Europe. I would send letters and we would trade videos. And so I was getting them, of course I had to transfer them.
2: Yeah. yeah. Then you'd have
1: the Montreal Jazz Festival, the Jacksonville, Montreux. And so that's when my collection was really growing of jazz videos. So yeah. when they decided to do the Buddy Rich Jazz Legend volume one and two, I had the biggest collection videos that they could use. And, and I didn't, that was free. I just did it because I wanted to give back and wanted people to see it. Yeah. A friend of mine, Bruce Klauber was the producer, mm. put it all together. And Kathy, you know, was very glad and Buddy's daughter, Kathy, yeah, sure. that we did this. And uh, for Bird and for Buddy, I supplied some of them for Neil Peart. So it was a lot of fun to do.
0: I mean, I, I've talked about it on the show before, but I truly think that there's sometimes there's these videos, uh, archival videos on YouTube of, of Buddy or who Buddy's pretty, uh, he's very popular, so he, he's a different category. But if there's a drummer, let's say like uh, Shadow Wilson or some someone who's like a, a very popular drummer who there's maybe one video on all of YouTube. Let's say it's like a drummer from an old, you know, a country that literally doesn't even exist (laughs) anymore or something like that. And there's one video and that video is on YouTube. That really is probably because a guy like you who bought the tape in the nineties or eighties, converted it, sat on it later, put it on YouTube. So, so really, I mean, you know, your, your contribution to the drum world and collecting is great, but Historically, these tapes are very, very important. So I think it's great that you did that and and kind of had the uh, the foresight to save these and convert them and and be smart about it.
1: Well, uh, and I would share them with with friends all the time. We would trade back and forth, and it was a lot of fun. And and when you watch these, especially some of the older ones, you know it's it, there's a movie, uh, Las Vegas Nights. You get to see Buddy with Tommy Dorsey real early um chip ahoy he mm-hmm. has a dance scene with eleanor powell he tap dances with her you know at the end they they trade and it's just to see he does hawaiian war chant with uh ziggy Elman. and if you look at the drums at the end the ride cymbals down mm-hmm. so it's not blocking him because the camera's coming up at an angle you it. get to see all these things that were just great
0: Yeah, and there's the video. You would absolutely know immediately more about it than me, but like there's the video of Buddy performing somewhere on on old TV where he's got a chair and he starts off singing, kind of doing the crooning, right? And and it's like, how often do you see that? I mean, drumology
1: was his. What he called he he tapped and sang. Yep. Played percussion and uh, there's one video missing of traps the drum wonder. But he, you know, did it for Vitaphone when he was a young boy. There's the soundtrack where you can hear him go yeah. into a music store and play on the counter, but the video's never been found.
0: Which I- I've heard of that, and, and that just it- that keeps you going, doesn't it? Like- <laughs> yeah, well, it
1: did. That was one of the things Mel Torme had tried to search for forever. Yeah, never could find that.
0: You know, I had uh, so at my at the studio job I've I've had for working with a studio for years. I remember I used to convert tapes uh, audio. So it'd be two inch like Ampex tape where we'd, you know, we'd bake the tape. We'd put it in, um, you know, on the, the two inch, the reel to reel and then convert it back into Pro Tools and split it out into 24 tracks or whatever. So I was doing this for a guy and I had this box of old tapes, you know, and in there there was a canister It was like kind of green and it was about, you know, maybe six inches around. And uh, it said with tape that was like really old and peeled off. It said Gene Krupa. And I remember emailing the guy because he was taking the video somewhere else to get converted because that's not what we didn't do that. And um, and I remember just never hearing back. I think I followed up because I and I'll never forget that it was like. What is on that tape of Gene Krupa? Like, <laughs> I'll right, Well, oh, that,
1: that, you know, and, and one of the tapes that I searched were for videos forever, wasn't even Buddy. It was a trumpet player, Clifford Brown,
2: mm.
1: who was with Max Roach and was killed tragically in a car accident at 25 years old.
2: Mm. And he
1: appeared on TV once on Soupy Sales Show in 1956, called Soup's On.
2: Wow. And
1: I even wrote to Soupy and to his son, who was a drummer, uh, and said, wait, does anybody have it?" And finally, I found it somewhere in Europe, and now it's on YouTube. You can see Clifford Brown playing trumpet. So it's all these rarities that, you know, they were as much fun to collect, but those go in the cloud now. You know, the VHS tapes would disintegrate after a while, so all my videos are in the cloud. It doesn't take up room like snare drums does.
0: So that reminds me of, because this is such a fun, I never get to talk about this video stuff with anyone and you're the guy. I mean, <laughs> so uh, there was one I was watching where uh, it was a documentary, I think about P- about Vietnam or something like that. And, and there was a clip of a USO show with Sammy Davis Jr. playing drums. And I'd seen some clips of him performing at USO shows and I couldn't find it. Then I ended up finding like nineteen seventy two u s o full dot m p four or whatever like like someone just uploaded it and didn't change the name. and six months, yeah, like, like so six months after of looking, I remember finding that clip and finding this video of Sammy Davis playing the drum solo. and then I was just like, oh my God, I found it. I upload it. It does okay. <laughs> you know, a couple of people watch it, but still just feeling good about that hunt. and there's one um which was kind of from my generation of, you know, growing up with Wayne's world with Dana Carvey and the drum solo in Um, there. There's a video from, and and I'm going to put this out there. If anyone has it on VHS, I need to have it. It's, it it was a promotional clip. It was like from Wayne's world music, a go, go. And Dana Carvey does a drum solo. It's not the big famous one from the movie, but um, there's one clip of it on YouTube under a weird name that has the most high pitch, Tea kettle kind of screech through the whole thing that is unbearable to listen to, but I'm still searching for this like promotional copy. It's the only other drum solo I've seen of of Wayne and Garth. Uh, it's it's less classic than Buddy Rich, but I'm still searching for it. Every every couple months, you kind of start typing some keywords and trying to find. All right,
1: it. Well, and then you can do the real disappointment, like I had with. So there was a there was a rumor. There was a video made in 1984 of Buddy Rich in Spain. So, okay, I'm on the hunt, and I'm looking for it. And months and months go by, writing letters to people. And this is in, like, 1986, so it's still pre-internet and things. And I finally get a guy that says, I have it, Buddy Rich in Spain. And I pay him. And, of course, it's in PAL. I can't watch it. So I send it, I pay to get it transferred, get it back, put it in. It's Buddy Rich in Montreal Jazz Fest with a Spanish announcer and Spanish subtitles. They took that video uh, and showed it in Spain. And wow. I originally had gotten it off of BET TV, Black Entertainment Television yeah. was showing the jazz festivals for some time sure. in the in the mid-80s. So I you know, recorded it, but here, I now spent, you know, probably $300 <sighs> to get the same version with a Spanish-speaking announcer overdubbing
0: oh, the regular man. announcer. God, so, I mean, he he wasn't, he didn't have ill will, but it was just sounds like a miscommunication of like, well.
1: He was Spain. it came from Spain, it
0: yeah. was on Spanish TV. Oh, geez. Now, can you explain, I, I actually, I'm more familiar with the audio formats, but I always see PAL, P-A-L, What is that format? And how does, what is, yeah.
1: So what it basically, it's the same size as a VHS tape, but in Europe, their television is, is done differently. So they process it over this PAL where in the United States it's NTSC. Yep. I I don't remember what they stand for, but if you were to put a PAL tape in a regular VCR that played NTSC, you wouldn't see anything or hear anything.
0: Got it. Okay. It has
1: to be put into that format.
0: Got it. It's just their regional. Right, 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 exactly right. Now we don't have to worry about it because there's YouTube. So <laughs> Right.
1: <laughs> there is YouTube. Yeah. Which again is is great. You know, for me, I uh, it was a collection and I had to, you know, put it on a machine and watch it and and now it's it's everywhere.
0: Yeah. Did you have to um worry about saving these in any type of special kind of humidity or anything like that? I mean, I guess they'd been living in someone's garage or basement for 30 years before, but did you try and preserve them in a special well, I, so kind So of I way?
1: had most of mine, I had gotten either from somebody as a copy oh, or a recent, you know, version of it so that they really never stayed anywhere in my basement was dry and temperature controlled. So, there was never a problem with mine. Yeah. And then, you know, about nine, 10 years ago, I started transferring them to DVD. And then I would transfer the DVD to an MPEG, MP4, you yeah. know, yeah. video. So, and it's all, you know, in the cloud. I can be anywhere on my phone and show somebody a video because I have it in Dropbox. Yeah. And, you know, oh, and yeah. I have it, so, you know, I can show anything. I, yeah. it's really easy.
0: I mean, it's great. It, it takes away a little bit of the fun and the ownership of a guy like you who's been collecting these. And it's so important. But it, now it's just it's for everyone. It's like it's been let go and it's it belongs to the world uh, a little bit more. But it's cool. You had that special time of like hunting these tapes down and just for the pure joy of watching Buddy play.
1: Well, well, yeah, we used to. I know me and a million other people would look at TV Guide to see if he was going to be on Johnny Carson that week. Wow. Of course that's that's what you had to do. Just like as a kid, you waited for the Wizard of Oz to come on once a year. (laughs) You know, my kids got to watch it every day if they wanted.
0: Yeah. And and
1: and and that leads also to learning how to play. You know, we learn by listening. A lot of kids today, you know, they learn by by watching somebody. You could see buddy videos, you could see John Bonham videos,
2: Mm -hmm. Steve
1: Gad, Louis Belson, Matt. You could see and you know, watch what they're doing. Kids today are such tremendous players. Yeah. And I really do believe part of that is they have the ability to see versus listening. You know, to try to figure out what somebody's doing by only listening.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. I mean you're you're inundated with it now where there's 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 so much that you gotta know what to watch and, and sometimes too much stuff can be like overwhelming where where when you when you got that one tape and you pop it in and you watch it, that's all your that's all you got right now, right? Um, but but I think it's definitely a a, a very um, it's a good time to be a drummer. So Lewis, I mean, this has been unbelievable, especially getting into the tape stuff. I didn't know anything about that. I mean, you are one hell of a collector um <laughs> with a lot of different. Uh, elements to it. And one thing that we didn't really touch on that I was I was hoping maybe we could pop over and after we finish this maybe do a quick bonus episode sure. with a couple questions. We got to talk a little more about Buddy. Maybe I can pick your brain on a few of your favorite Buddy stories. I mean, there's obviously there's a lot of them out there. Um so um if you guys want to hear that, listening, you can go to drumhistorypodcast.com, click the Patreon um button and join up for as low as 2 bucks a month and you get to hear from cool people such as Lewis who can, who can uh, provide a little, you know, some, some fun extra stories. So Lewis, this has been awesome. Do you have anything you want to like promote, like albums you've played on or a YouTube or Facebook or anything like that while we wrap up?
1: Well, I just would say that the Hudson music videos of the Buddy Rich and Gene Krupa and drummers, drum legends are great. Mm -hmm. Uh, Rob Wallace and Paul Siegel are great people. They really Painstakingly made sure they did the right thing to get these videos out for people when just you couldn't see a lot of Buddy yeah. back then and having the film clips. So I'm a big fan of the Hudson music videos, and uh, you know just keep keep those names somewhere in the back of your mind. Buddy, Gene, Cozy Cole, Chick Webb, you know these are the people that really made drums and drummers. Yeah, you know, important without yeah. them, you know, you wouldn't have a drummer or, or doing things that Ringo and, and, uh, Dave Clark, you know, they, these were people that inspired us growing up. Charlie Watts is yeah. all great things. So that's, you know, yeah. keep the collections going.
0: Absolutely. And I think, you know, going back to the original core of this earlier of just talking about downsizing, uh, I think you, you kind of shined a light on it for some people who are maybe just gobbling up drums right now to think about what am I going to do with this down the road? Or if I have 500 or 600 snare drums, like Mike Corrado, it, that doesn't seem to be bothering him <laughs> in any way, <laughs> but, um, yeah, it's just a really cool kind of perspective on it. So, so I also want to say real quick again, thank you to Richard Hirsch. Who's just a really nice guy. Who's, who's sure uh, was e- emailing me earlier today too uh, we were going back and forth. So, um, on that note, Lewis, thank you for being here and uh, sharing your immense knowledge, and uh, it's just been awesome. I'm honored. Thank you. If you like this podcast, find me on social media at Drum History, and please share, rate, and leave a review. And let me know topics that you would like to learn about in the future. Until next time, keep on learning.